We are starting the book of Philippians today, and I'll give you a piece of advice. Oh no. <laughs> we, we have a lot to cover today with a message and communion, and so take out your speed pens if you're a note taker. Um, I'm not a note taker. I have a mind like a steel trap. Nothing gets in. (laughs) And so if you are a note taker, which I do love, uh, be prepared to move. Let's pray. (laughs) Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word that provides us with joy, comfort, Lord, encouragement and even conviction. And so, Lord, bless Your Word today as it goes forth. May it speak into the hearts and minds of everyone here, Lord, as You have designed it to speak to them. Jesus, we thank You that we have Your Word to do all those things, Lord, in our lives. We thank You, Jesus, and pray in Your name. Amen. I'm a history buff, and so we're going to begin with a little bit of history of Philippi. And it's a very interesting city. It's located in northeastern Greece, which at that time was called Macedonia. And when Paul arrived in the city, it had been established by Rome as an important trade city. It was located along the Silk Road, just less than 10 miles inland from the Aegean Sea. And when Paul arrived, or even before Paul arrived, Philippi had been established by Rome as a retirement resort for Roman soldiers. They, they would get property. Uh, they would have a pension. And, you know, we don't think about those things in ancient times. But if you were fortunate enough to survive time in the Roman army, which probably wasn't a lot of people, but if you were fortunate enough, this is where you would retire. And I don't know if they lived a life of ease or what, but this is where they would be. And you know, when Paul arrived, it was 49 AD. And Philippi had become a a melting pot of religions with all of those Roman soldiers, and, and, you, and you think about Roman soldiers as coming from Rome. Well, that, that wasn't true. There were people from all different cultures in the Roman army. Some of them were in the Roman army to earn money enough to buy citizenship because you had special privileges when you were a Roman citizen. And there were many, many cultures, many, many idols, many, many religions And they settled in Philippi. Philippi was already an ancient city when Paul arrived. Paul was on his second missionary journey. And he originally went to to, uh, Macedonia because of a night vision that he received. And, And that's in Acts chapter 16. Where a man from Macedonia was standing and said, Come to Macedonia. We need your help. 
And so Paul responded to that vision. And, and, and you know, guys, this is really important for us because this was the first time that the gospel was brought west. And from Paul going to Philippi, <clears throat> the gospel spread eventually all throughout Greece. Then it spread all throughout Europe. And eventually it came and spread all throughout America. And so Philippi is really very important to us because that is our lineage, if you will, of coming to know Jesus. Now, a a historical Roman battle happened in Philippi. In 42 B.C., Octavius and Antony defeated Brutus and Cassius in, in the Roman Civil War because then the soldiers were not loyal to Rome. They weren't loyal to their country. They were loyal to their generals. And it was very, very common for these generals who wanted to rise in stature, wanted to try to be the emperor, wanted to, to, to gain more important offices, for them to, I don't want to use the word defect, but for them to gather their armies and then the generals would have portions of the Roman army and they would fight each other. And that's what was going on here. And also, Philippi was named after Alexander the Great's father, King Philip. Philippians was written by Paul from a Roman prison around 60 to 62 A.D., And in this letter, he addresses several objectives that are on his mind. First, it's clear that Paul wanted the church to know how things were going for him in his imprisonment and what his plans were if should he be released. And second, there appears to have been some discord and division in the church. Imagine that. (laughs) You know, when there's division in a church... It's, it's curious because people that don't go to that church, all of a sudden they're very interested in that church. And it's like, wow, those wacky Christians are like fighting each other again. Let's, let's go check it out. And, and that's what happens. I've, I've experienced that. And you know, it's a, a divided body or disunity can often be linked to pride. And when pride takes over, people can often be critical of others, be gossipers, dissenters. And all of us, including me, we would do well to adhere to what the Bible says in Proverbs. Pride comes before a fall. Now that fall can be personally or it can be a fall for a church. In Jesus' words, and these are important, a house divided cannot stand. Third, Paul writes to warn of negative teaching and the consequences of certain false teachers. Fourth, Paul wrote to commend Timothy to the church as well as to give the church a report about the health and plans of Epaphroditus who was there with Paul 
and was sent by the church in Philippi. Fifth, Paul wrote to thank the church for their concern for him and the gifts that they had given. Now, Paul's beloved son, Timothy, was with him. Timothy was not in prison, but he was acting as Paul's messenger. He was acting as Paul's servant, and he was also a co-laborer in Christ. He would take the pulse of the city, let Paul know what was going on. Because it's very important, as we see later on, uh, the things that were going on in, in the city at the time that directly affected Paul. Philippians verse 1, chapter 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the, with the bishops and deacons. I want to talk about Timothy for just a little bit because, you know, Timothy comes up quite a bit, but we don't know when he died. We don't know where he died. We just know that he was a beloved son of Paul. And what's interesting about Timothy is that Timothy was both a Jew and a Gentile. His mother was Jewish and his father was a Gentile. And I believe that Paul, when he met Timothy, he could discern by the Spirit that, hey, this is a guy that would be great to have with me because he can minister both to the Jews and he can minister both to the Gentiles. And that's what Paul would do. When he would go into a city, the first stop, synagogue, explain, teach, all those things the prophecies of the Messiah and use God's Word to touch their hearts, to let them see that, yes, Messiah had come. And then from there, Paul would would build a church and the Gentiles would come. And so, Timothy was certainly an interesting person. Another interesting thing about Timothy is he was the first Gentile after his conversion to become a missionary. And he's what missionaries today would call a long-term missionary. That is, there was no intention of coming back. He was going to the mission field, and he was staying in the mission field. You know, when I was in Sudan, we had a large sign hanging in the front of the church, and I always loved it. It read, Jesus said, go unto all the world and make disciples of all men. He never said anything about coming back. (laughs) Verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace here means favored or accepted. Paul's saying you're favored and accepted by God after receiving His free gift of grace. And if we paraphrase that in the original language, It says, because you Philippians have received God's grace, you have also received His peace, and you are favored and accepted by Him. You know, church, our peace in Christ is an authentic peace that the world, they they cannot know it or understand it. 
They can see us in trials and tribulation and see that although those things affect us, of course they affect us. They affect me. But they can see that we are different in the way that we handle those things. And for the world, those who are perishing, there's only a false, fleeting peace. And that peace is normally derived from drugs, alcohol, money, material possessions, physical experiences. And and that's not an authentic peace. That's an escape. Drugs and alcohol wear off. There's never enough money. Never enough possessions. Experiences fade. But with our peace... It's a permanent peace. And even in our weaknesses, sometimes we don't feel at peace. But the difference is is that our peace doesn't wear off or fade. And you know, the world doesn't understand us. We truly are a peculiar people. And I love that word. Peculiar. Man, that guy's peculiar. Those Christians are peculiar. And the world sees us in trials and problems, tribulations. Sometimes loss and grief. But they should see that we are different. Verses 3 through 5. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. There's three points I want to make in these three verses. Number one, Paul talks about thankfulness and prayer. And and he's saying he thanks God for causing him to remember the church body in Philippi. You know, as a pastor and the other pastors in the church, we get almost daily prayer requests from people. And... When someone asks me to pray, I make a point of praying with them immediately and not saying, okay, I'll pray for you. Pray for them then. And if I kept a notebook in my pocket and wrote every request down, it would be a long prayer list. It would be like carrying a roll of toilet paper, you know, and just writing down all those prayer requests, and then when I sit down to pray, unroll that toilet paper and, 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 and pray for each person on there. And so that's something I don't do. But you know, here's what God does speak to me. And it seems that Paul has the same experience as me. I rely on God to prioritize my prayers as it seems Paul does also. In my daily prayers for my wife, my grandchildren, myself, my new great-granddaughter, my five children, their spouses, yes, I have an extended family. But you know, after that, I rely on God, as Paul says here, to cause remembrance of the people that have asked me to pray for. And God does that. 
and I rely on the Spirit to lead my prayers. And God causes remembrance. And often the prayers are, 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 are different. I, I recently left a job where I was counseling and ministering to foster kids. And when I left, you know, I would always empty the trash and, and do the vacuuming so other people at the office didn't have to do it. And when I left, God put it on my heart. You know, be a volunteer. Keep doing that for them. Bless them. And so I continue to do that. And I was vacuuming one night, and this goes along with remembrance. <clears throat> I was vacuuming the office one night, and one of the girls that I worked with, a coworker, she has a lot of health problems, and she's very young. And she's a Christian, and she would ask me to pray for her. Well, it had been a couple of months since I had prayed for her. And I was vacuuming the office, and all of a sudden, bang. You're supposed to pray for Becky. Remember, pray for Becky. And, and, and that's an example in my life of how God causes remembrance. Somebody asked me to pray for them, I see them, I remember. And, and God is faithful to do that. <clears throat> Number two, Paul says to pray in joy. And so even when praying for sad and hard things for ourselves or others, we make our requests with joy. Not in the trials that we're having, but in knowing we have an all-loving God who knows our burdens, our sadnesses, our struggles, and our concerns. Be joyful for the fact that we can come in to the very Holy of Holies, to the mercy seat of Jesus, and pour out our hearts to Him. And we know that He's listening and cares, and He shares in our fears and tears. That's what Jesus does for us. And number three, Paul talks about the fellowship of the gospel. Whether we pray for our fellow saints or unsaved people, we must rejoice in the gospel fellowship we have. First, with our Christian brothers and sisters. And we also rejoice that we have the fellowship of the gospel to share with unbelievers those who are perishing for the lack of the gospel that we are bringing to them. We're going to cover verses 6 and 7 right now. Being confident of this very thing, that He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Everybody knows that verse. Pretty much. And a lot of people say, oh, that's my favorite verse. <clears throat> and I love it too. Don't get me wrong. It is a great verse and very encouraging. But it's got two points. First, when we read this verse, we take it at face value. We rejoice. And, and we should rejoice. Because we know when we became a Christian... Jesus began a good work in us. We don't know what that work is going to be, but we know that He began a good work. 
and that He promised He will complete that work until we go home to be with Him face to face or we're raptured out of this world and we go there to be face to face with Him. And He comes and takes His bride. But second, and this is a hard one, guys, that maybe you haven't thought about, is what is the process of Him doing that work in our lives? What is that process that He does to fulfill our calling, that good work that He began? And that calling is different for all of us. Jesus called me to be a pastor, a teacher, and a missionary. But I, can, but I believe I can say with certainty that whatever your calling is, Jesus has prepared you as He has prepared me. But the way He prepares us many times is through the refiner's fire. It is then that we grow. It is then that we learn. Without that refiner's fire, we as Christians would be stagnant. We would not be going forward, maybe moving backwards, but we need that refiner's fire. And it's never fun. And you know the illustration here is is God as a blacksmith. And the Father holds the hammer. And the anvil is our trials, our tribulations, our sufferings that, that, that God uses to grow us. And we are the blob of metal, shapeless, formless. And God takes us and He puts us in the fire and it's hot. And He heats us up more and more. Then He pulls us out and He puts us on that anvil and He begins to pound. And he pounds, and he pounds. He heats us again, and he pounds some more. Why is he doing that? He's pounding out our dreams, our wishes, our will, our desires, and he replaces them with his dreams, his wishes, his desires, and his will. And as the father that holds the hammer finishes his work, the end result is us as a sharp, two-edged sword shining in the sun, which is the S-O-N, sun. And that's the work that God does. We're forged in fire into the image of Christ through suffering and shaping on the anvil of Father God. That's how God completes His good work in our lives. And it's His desire that we are molded into the image of His Son. The Bible makes that very clear. And because of that, we must learn to be long-suffering in our own lives in order that we might share in Christ's sufferings as the Bible says we must. Verse 7 says, Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers with me of Christ. To the Philippians, Philippi, the church there, to them that was Paul's home church. He came, he planted it, he watered it, and they considered Paul 
to be their missionary. And they supported him through prayer, material support, and financial support. And I can tell you as a missionary, that support is your lifeline. It really is important to have people backing you and be behind you and supporting you in the mission field. And also, Paul's giving them an example of placing the concerns of others before his own. Here he is in chains, chained to a Roman soldier, 24 hours a day most likely. And in this letter, he's expressing to the church in Philippi that he's more concerned about them than he is for himself, which is a wonderful model for us to be more concerned about others. Verses 8-11 through 11 says, For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. In this verse, Paul is talking about genuine Christian love. And genuine Christian love is a reflection of Christ's love which should burn in all of us that are united to Him. The love we show to our brothers and sisters as well as to the lost and to our enemies, that's a hard one, has everything to do with Christ. We are incapable of that love. We're incapable of that unconditional love. And we're incapable of unconditional forgiveness. And that's a hard one. To... Forgive those that harm you, that hurt you, especially Christian brothers and sisters. That's the hard one. And Paul says in verse 9, And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and discernment. Jesus desires our love to be abounding. And the picture here of abounding is of a river in the spring and the snow's melting and there's rain and and that river grows and grows and grows over time and all of a sudden it overflows the banks. That is the picture here for us. When we're born again, Christ comes and He melts our hearts and that love begins to flow. And as Christ continues to work in our lives, you know, this isn't an immediate thing, but in in my years walking with the Lord, my love continues to get closer to those banks. And as it gets closer, one day it's just going to overflow. And sometimes it does now, but sometimes it can recede. But that's what Christ's desire is for us, is that our love be abounding, overflowing the banks. Verse 10, Paul says that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere without offense till the day of Christ. Now, Paul encourages discernment in those things that are considered to be excellent so that our love will be sincere And we will not offend believers and non-believers alike. 
And we're always to love, as I said, forgive unconditionally and have love when we have love for non-believers, when we share the gospel with them. Many people are offensive when they share the gospel. And we need to share that in love. Sharing the gospel. It's interesting, the word for sincere here literally means, in ancient times, the, the, the potters, as they finished what they were making, a vase, a vessel, they would hold that vase up to the sun. And that's the picture here for the word sincere. It literally means holding it up to the sun. And by holding it up to the sun, and the sun coming through that, they could see little cracks if they were there that were otherwise invisible. And so the picture for us is that our love that flows through us from Christ be sincere. And so we hold up our love to the sun, the S-O-N, and we let Him shine through it and we can see if there's any cracks in our love. And then we put ourselves back on the spinning wheel and let Christ mold us and fix those cracks. Colossians 3, 12-15, it gives a list of the excellent things. As the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bear with one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, you must also do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which you are also called in one body, and be thankful. You know, you can sum up those verses, those sentences, with one, one short sentence, and that is, walk in the Spirit. Amen? Walk in the Spirit. And when we do that, we are modeling those excellent things that Paul's talking about. Verses 12 through 14, Paul talks about the opportunities of obstacles. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evidence, evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. He's in prison because of Christ, because of his faithfulness to Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. We, as Paul, will be persecuted because of our relationship with Jesus Christ. But the wonderful thing here is that when that persecution comes, that is going to serve to make other Christians more bold, as Paul talks about here. Christians will find courage and boldness that they didn't know they have to share the gospel. The Spirit will come. They will see persecution of others and obtain that boldness and begin preaching the gospel. When there's no persecution and 
This applies to many churches today. Churches tend to become lazy, inactive, content. But we should rejoice. And I think about this a lot. That persecution is coming. If we look at the horrible events in the, in the world today, and we use our earthly eyes, we can become fearful, anxious, worried. But if we use our heavenly eyes and see things in the light of eternity, we can overcome these obstacles because we know that Christ is beside us through everything. Guys, pray for your pastors. And I don't know if you've thought about this, <laughs> but my personal belief is Christianity, if the Lord tarries, will eventually be criminalized in America. And that's just not my personal opinion. I share that opinion with Billy Graham, his son, and his daughter, Ann Graham-Lotz. They have all stated the same thing, that eventually that will happen. And it's not far-fetched. You know, currently in England, there's a push by some radical atheist evolutionists who say it should be illegal to teach the Bible literally to your children. And if you do, you should be charged with child abuse. And so persecution is coming, brothers and sisters, and we need to be prayed up. And I can tell you that your pastor is here. We will go to jail before we do not, you know, before we comply with, with these laws. We will preach the word. We will stand on it. We will be faithful to it. And if it comes to it, your pastors will go to jail. It'll be like dominoes. Bang, 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 bang. So be ready. Somebody's got to fill the pulpit. Maybe it's you. Also, recently in Idaho, a bill was passed. It will probably be appealed, I'm sure. Making it illegal for a pastor to refuse to officiate a gay wedding. And so if that is enacted into law, pastors will be going to jail for making that refusal. It is coming in our country. If pastors in America begin to be arrested, I believe the church will finally wake up. And I believe that it's going to take that to finally ignite revival in this country. Christians become more bold. They don't go and hide. And that's very historical. And so, do not look at coming persecution with fear. <clears throat> or trepidation. As I said, it is going to be an opportunity for revival to finally ignite. 
We're going to end with verses 15 through 20. And, and as the elements are passed out for communion, while we cover these verses, again, prepare your hearts to receive the Lord's Supper. Paul says, Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely. Remember, sincere? The cracks in the vessel? That's what the attitude of these guys were that are preaching from envy and strife. You hold up their sincerity and there's a lot of cracks in their attitude. Though they're preaching the correct gospel, they're preaching it out of envy and strife. They want what Paul has. They are envious of him. And as they preach the gospel with this attitude, they're preaching it from the flesh and not the spirit. They're, they're hoping to offend Paul. They're hoping that he's going to hear what's going on and that he's going to be jealous of what they're doing. Oh, I should be out there doing that. I can't believe these guys are out there preaching the gospel. But again, it's the correct gospel but it's about the heart. Amen? As Christians, it's always about the heart. God looks at our heart. Verse 17, Paul says, But the latter preach out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the Gospel. And I like the way Paul writes because a lot of times he asks a question right in the middle of... Uh, Writing, he says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. But with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. Again, there's a difference. The first group, preaching from the flesh. The second group, preaching genuinely from the heart and from the Spirit. And this would be encouraging to Paul. Paul says, regardless of these two groups of men, the true gospel was being preached, and in that, he rejoiced. And it will be the same if your pastors go to jail. The wonderful thing, the wonderful thing about that as we see throughout history and we see in Paul's life that although your pastors or you can be in chains, the Gospel can never be chained. Nothing can stop the Gospel from going out. Amen? Let's prepare our hearts for the celebration of communion. Time to... <clears throat> Put on my eyes.
First Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 and 25 says, And when he had given thanks, he broke the bread and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do... Thank you, sir. This do as often as you think, as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. So, what do we remember? Of course, we remember the crucifixion. But there's so much more when we look at what Christ actually did for us. Some of the prophecies of Christ say there was no comeliness about him. There was nothing physical. He wasn't beautiful. He wasn't charismatic. There was nothing to draw people to him except relating what the Father had told him to say. And we can go on and on and on. We remember that his hands and his feet were pierced. We remember that they gambled for his clothes at the foot of the cross. We remember that by his stripes we are healed. We remember that he bore the iniquities of us all. We remember that he was scourged. We remember that he wore a crown of thorns. We remember that he was beaten. We remember that he was so weak that he couldn't carry that cross and someone had to carry it for him. You know, Jesus was still God. He could have called, as the Bible says, 10,000 angels to come and bear that cross for him. Jesus, as God, he could have said, all right, this is enough. And he could have picked up that cross and lifted it over his head and then walked the rest of the way. But he didn't do that. He suffered. And then ultimately, he died. The Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And when we remember that, all of those things, so much more than just remembering the crucifixion, we can be thankful that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came and by His stripes we are healed. Let's partake. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we do remember what You did for us, Lord. All of those things. So much suffering. And everything that You went through was for us. And Jesus, we should have been on the cross. We should have been beaten. Those thorns should have been ours. But Lord...
you interceded and you took all of those things upon yourself. And Lord, it is hard, incomprehensible to understand what all of that means in this earthly tent. But Lord, one day we will see you and we will know exactly what you did for us. Lord, what it must have felt like when the sins of the world were placed on you. And Lord, you felt forsaken because God cannot look upon sin and the Father turned away. And yet you became sin, literally became sin for us. Lord, we look forward to the day when we will understand all of that. We love you, Jesus, and we pray in your name. Amen.